We're going to practice an ancient tradition called bidding prayers, and I'm going to bid you to pray at appropriate times. And so when I give the instruction, you can lift up your voice and pray out loud and pray with us as a congregation. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let's bow our heads and focus ourselves on God. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray and center yourself. So just a moment of quietness as we prepare to pray. Lord, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of all the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of the nations. The whole earth is filled with the awe of your wonders. While morning dawns where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. And I bid you, people of God, lift up a praise, a note of joy to the Lord, something for which you are thankful. Just lift it up out loud to the Lord. Lord, we thank you when we call to you, you answer. We thank you that you are a good God. We can trust you. We can place great confidence in you. We thank you, Lord, that when we have lost our way, you find us and put us back on the path. When we've sinned, you call to mind our wrongdoing and you receive our confession of sins and you forgive us and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. I bid you now, people of God, to lift up the sins. And as we pray, I remind you that the Lord's prayer is in the plural. We have sinned. And we sin. And so I'll begin. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for greed, for selfishness, for self-centeredness. I bid you, people of God, pray. And there are people in our midst who need God's healing touch through doctors, through psychiatrists, through counselors, through teachers, through friends, through pastors. So I bid you, people of God, to simply say the first name of a person that you know is in need of God's healing touch today. It might be emotional or physical healing. Just name that name before God today. Lord, we lift up our voices to you for these loved ones that are on our minds and hearts today and ask that in the midst of their struggle with the flesh or with the mind or in other ways that you might be near them, encourage them. We pray for your healing touch upon them. Now, Lord, for this service, we ask for your blessing upon us as we've gathered to worship you, to pray, to hear your word opened. Bless your servant, Bill, as he brings the word to us now. And, Lord, we open our hearts to you. Speak, Spirit, and we will listen and respond. And, Lord, as we go forth, may we truly go forth to be the church in the world in which you've sent us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. I've been looking forward to today. Uh, for lots of reasons, and one of them is a very choice servant of the Lord, Dr. William Pinnell, or Bill, is with us today to bring the word of the Lord. But uh, let me ask Dr. David Scholler to introduce Bill. I think my first uh, official meeting with Bill, at least in recent history, I had heard Bill speak in retreats and other settings years ago. But uh, last fall, before David had his surgery, I went to pray with David and Jeanette uh, before the surgery, and we waited for quite a while there at Glendale Hospital. And the bill was there. And uh, I told Joyce later, I wished I'd have had a recorder. 
because there were Bill and David sort of swapping stories. These two men have followed the Lord a long time, been uh, around the country and partly around the world, and we're talking about people I'd heard of but never met, and it was just a delight for some 30 minutes to an hour, I suppose, to listen to them talk like a fly on the wall, and uh, it was a joy, and that was the first time I reconnected with Bill, and uh, he's going to be bringing the word of the Lord to us uh, in just a moment. But David, why don't you introduce Bill to us? Thank you, Pastor Steve. Um, <clears throat> some some of you know that I do enjoy telling stories, and, <laughs> and so does Bill. I want to say that Bill is one of my best friends in this world. And he's been very close to me in the difficult times I've had. I admire him very, very much. Bill and his wife, Hazel, have been married over 50 years they have two wonderful sons, five beautiful grandchildren. And Bill is also a very avid golfer. In fact, in 12 days when the Masters tournament starts and Tiger Woods is hoping to win, Bill is actually hoping Tiger will get sick and ask him to fill in and no one would notice. <laughs> Bill has been one of the stalwarts on the faculty at Fuller Theological Seminary. He is allegedly retired, uh, but he still teaches. He's a special assistant to the president. And Bill has done so much that is positive for the life of Fuller Seminary and its influence throughout the world. And he's done many other things, as you have read in your bulletin, including books and articles and his service as an evangelist with Tom Skinner Associates back in the days when white evangelists didn't like to join up with black evangelists. And Bill, Bill knows the history of some of the deepest problems in our nation in his person. And he communicates the love of God and faithfulness to Christ in a very deep, deep way. And uh, Bill and I are often together, but when we're not, and we're both watching something on television, sports, we call up each other all the time and cheer our favorites on. Now, one liability Bill has is he's from Detroit, and he always cheers for Detroit teams. And someday he's got to get over that. <laughs> but I want to tell you that he's a wonderful man and we're in for a delightful treat. God bless you, Bill. We're so happy to have you here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Most of what he said is true. <laughs> that part about being friends is true. I'll tell you that. Along with Jeanette. What a woman. Jeanette's my pastor, in a way. And uh, if, uh, if I were king, I'd promote her. It's been uh, a number of years since I've been on this premise. And I don't think I've ever been in this particular room. 
It's uh, cozy and nice, although I'm having a hard time seeing. Oh, there you are. <laughs> light's terrible. I hate lights in the preacher's eyes that affect their ability to see the audience. As, as, as the black soldiers used to say uh, in the Revolutionary War, uh, don't, don't shoot until you see the whites. Of their eyes. <laughs> oh, uh, mercy. <laughs> yes, we've made our way through a series of, of uh, national celebrations and occasions for which we are all very grateful. Uh, my... Uh, my pilgrimage along that line usually starts somewhere at the end of September, uh, Labor Day followed by whatever. And uh, it, it culminates, of course, at Christmas, New Year's. I'm always glad when the parade is over so we can get back to, the, to reality. Uh, and then we start the Lenten season and it climaxes, of course, at Easter. After Easter... I always think, wow, now what? Now what? We, again, back to reality. The sanctuary will not be full as it was on Easter. We, uh, we will have done away with uh, the ashes on our foreheads. An exercise here in this society, I think, to convince God that we're not really as bad as God says we are. Farewell to meet on Fat Tuesday, the ashes, and then whatever follows, to be followed by what we've always been in the first place. Ritual, and they are important. Occasions are important. One week after Easter, and what? The last several weeks I've been... Uh, Traversing the country uh, just happens that way. I was in uh, Santa Barbara suffering for Jesus with the Presbyterians. El Montecito and all of that. Uh, lavishness, lovely time. And then I, then I went from there to uh, Heston, Kansas, which is, as you know, just outside of, of, of Wichita. You can spend a long month one weekend in Heston. Over, over the years, I've been in and out of that little metropolis. Uh, there's a lovely uh, junior college there run by the Mennonites, and I was there with them and did some stuff with a friend of mine in concert and preached on Sunday morning. And then I came back, and I spent some time in Orange County, that other land down south, a retirement center where I go from time to time. That is under the... Uh, leadership of Quakers, and I've known Quakers forever. All God's children are Quakers at heart sometimes, I think, or ought to be. Then I was with the uh, Methodists in uh, northwest Pasadena, trying to convince them that, uh, that probably not many Methodists are Methodists. And they looked at me as if I'd just fallen off the train, and, and I looked back at them, because I'm convinced that's true. The only thing they know about Methodism is an occasional reference to a hymn that Charles wrote. But 
legacy of John, they know very little about. Both of them, of course, are dangerous. Really dangerous. And the theology that's in those hymns, Lord have mercy, that'll scare you to death. And that's where the theology of the church has always been. And now here I am among Baptists. Mercy. What has impressed me here and and elsewhere is the extent to which sometimes I get the impression the people of God don't really understand or appreciate what it really means to be the people of God. Now, you're working on it here. Be the church. Yet when we sing our songs, it isn't about us. It's about me. And that's important, by the way. If Jesus is alive, he is alive for us personally, intimately, individually. That's to be sure. But the more radical idea, I think, as he explodes in resurrection life, is captured, I think, even in the psalm that our brother has referred to in leading us in prayer. Praise is offered to you, O God, in Zion. It's the corporateness of God's choosing, choosing us that makes the difference. It's not me, although it is, but beyond me, there is us. What does it mean to be us? What does it mean in our time particularly to be the people of God, merely the people of God? With all due respect to our denominational affiliations, what does it mean beyond that and much deeper than that, more radically than that? What does it mean in any given place to be the people of God? I think that's one of the critical questions, maybe the critical question for the church in our time. I say that because the church, for the most part, at least in our country, has been so easily seduced by the state. God is a card-carrying Republican in most places. In other places, he's a Democrat. And in either case, depending on where you are in that, that affects and has affected our understanding of who we are as the people of God. That becomes the litmus test. We don't say it, but it's true. It's there. It's there. So the question oft times is not, what do you think about Jesus? How are you and he getting along? But what do you think about Obama? Or what his pastor said? Those are not questions that occupy the pagans of our society, the people who have no faith in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That question is in the hearts and minds of God's people as well, as if so much hangs on that particular question having to do with the nature of our society and its future. I want to talk a little bit about the peopleness of Zion. There is a place called Zion. The psalmist says. And it's not in Illinois. Or Utah. There there are politics associated with that name. There is a place. David's city. There are numerous references to that term, of course, in Scripture. But Zion is not Zionism. 
that place is associated with architecture, with brilliance, Solomon's genius, as he builds a temple for God. And he talks about this place, this Zion. But Zion is more than a place. Let me read again a portion of this passage from the 65th Psalm to refresh your minds about what's going on here. It's a bit complicated, I think. Uh, It has to do with a particularity of place, but it also has to do, it seems to me, with a projection of the significance of that place, even unto the ends of the earth. There's an eschatological aspect of this which is wrapped up in the hopes and the dreams, not only of Israel, but Israel for the nations, as it were. There's something going on here that's very profound. It has everything to do with the self-understanding and the self-realization of what it means in a given place and a given time to be the people of God. As if that really matters, as if there is a significance beyond all other identities in being the people of God in a given place. Not merely Jews, not merely Israelites, but the people of God. What does that mean? Listen to it again. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed, O you who answer prayer. To you all flesh shall come. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Praise in Zion, because God is there. Indeed, there is no Zion without God. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if people gathered in the name of God in any place and God was not there? What would you have? Who then would you be? Why would you be there? What would be the point? The psalmist says, we are happy because you have chosen us and brought us near to Zion. This aspect of chosenness is very prominent here, but also in all the Psalms, in all of Israel's literature, in her hymnody. When Israel dances before God, Israel dances when Israel is right with God in celebration of the fact that God hath chosen her. Out of all of the other options that Jehovah might have had, God hath chosen us, the psalmist says. And we are happy with that choice of God. And that's why we sing and dance and praise the Lord. We did not choose Jehovah, they are saying. Jehovah chose us and brought us near. There is access to God. And out of that, of course, there is intimacy with God. And that is why prayer is offered in Zion. Praise is offered there because God is there. And that God is the God of creation and the God who sustains what God has made 
This is a celebration of the wind and the rain, the way God enriches the earth and visits it and waters it, the river of God being full of water. You provide the people with grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening with showers and blessing its growth. That God who has created all things sustains what God has created and makes it beautiful and bountiful. And that is a source of praise when God's people get together. And then there is that sweet and radical transformation to a celebration of God's salvation. as The God who has created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power, that God has saved us, has redeemed us, and keeps us redeemed and saved. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? There is forgiveness here in Zion. It's a place where people gather to be forgiven. You, you remember, you remember um, Solomon's prayer as he dedicates the temple. And he prays to God. And I was struck by how often he asks God to remember Israel and anybody else in the land, wherever they've come from, whatever their backgrounds may be, if at any time anybody ever prays toward this place, toward this altar, in the name of this God, that God would hear and God would answer and God would what? Forgive. I was startled. Who in the world, who in the world installs an office or, or blesses a new building or whatever, makes a speech and talks about forgiveness? Come on. All these churches and all of these buildings and all of that stuff on Main Street are dedicated to us, to our genius, to our sagacity. We're smart people. We're smart, wealthy. We got the boulevards loaded with all good stuff so that people can park their Mercedes-Benz out front as they go into Ruth's. We have parades, and they are not intended to convince anybody to repent. None of our national holidays do that very well. And here is Solomon who says, Lord, listen to me. Please listen to me. I'm so glad that uh, that we are here, but I'm more happy that you're here. Even though um, it's hard for me to believe that you'll dwell in a place like this, even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. But regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord, my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you today. Hear the plea of your servant and your, your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Oh, here in heaven, your, your dwelling place, hear what we pray, hear in this place, heed what we say, and forgive. Mercy. I think we're flirting with this idea and the need for forgiveness, even in films these days. They were dark films. They won the academies. They were dark films, powerful expressions of what the Bible has always said about us. We're messed up. Messed up, dark, dank, evil, violent, greedy, self-centered, gluttonous. Hollywood has caught on. 
It's an ugly picture. Hence the need for forgiveness. And where will you go for that? The psalmist says there's only one place to go for forgiveness. When we have sinned, stepped across the line, when we have blown it and God calls it to our minds, that little bell goes off in the cranium of our consciousness and we know full well, without anybody telling us that we blew it. Where do you go for that? The psalmist says, we come to Zion because God is there. God is there. And God is full of grace and mercy. And when we pray to God and when we confess to God our sins, God forgives us. God is ready to forgive, eager to forgive. God's arms are wide open to those who sin, who acknowledge their transgressions, who come to God and sue for mercy and peace. And God smiles upon them as he hugs them to his bosom in forgiveness. There is a place called Zion where people praise God, for God is there. They praise God because they've been chosen by God. It's an awful thing. I heard Hubbard, Dr. Hubbard from Fuller one time, talk about the chosenness, the, the peril of being chosen. <laughs> uh, that's, it's a good thing to be reminded of that. Chosenness can turn sour. I mean, chosenness can, uh, can rot on you if you're not careful. Chosenness can betray a people into thinking that they, because they have been chosen, are special more than anybody else in the world. And they begin the process by which, by which, they turn the God who has chosen them into a tribal deity. A tribal deity. And it becomes in the ritual of the nation, a rationale for carnal nationalism in the name of God. Yeah, but when it's right, uh, when it's kept alive in the Spirit of God, the idea of being chosen can set your heart to more music than you can ever imagine. Even some of us who will pass 60 can dance to that. Amen? Amen. Baptist dance, I think they do. I remember one time I was, I was out in the back of a cocktail lounge. I was seated with a small bucket of potatoes in my lap. I was trying to make a couple of bucks in that little southern Michigan town. And I hadn't long been converted. And I didn't really know what I'd gotten myself into. I know I needed to be converted. I needed to be saved. I kind of wanted to be saved, sort of, at least just before all hell broke loose. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit had kind of worked in all kinds of ways and and I was apprehended in this revival meeting, and I was saved, and I was glad about that, but I didn't know what that was exactly. I was reading a Bible, I had a New Testament. They told me I ought to read the Bible, and I said, okay. Uh, where? Well, you'd start at the beginning, wouldn't you? Probably not. Although Genesis isn't a bad place to start, if that's what it means. 
But I was over, listen to this, I was over in Ephesians. <laughs> Nobody who has just recently converted ought to be in Ephesians. <laughs> but I didn't know that, of course. And I was over there in Ephesians. And uh, I, I came across this blessed thing in Ephesians 1. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without spot before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children. Well, I, 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 it took my breath away. I read it again. I, I read it, and I thought about it, and I wondered if it could be true. I lived in a society where all kinds of people were prepared to tell me who I was. All kinds of people were prepared to delimit the bounds of my habitation and to set the parameters of my movements and my aspirations I knew what that meant in that little southern Michigan slightly racist town of gentility and all that jazz I knew what that was to think, bless your heart, to think that God God had me in mind and chose me before the foundations of the world could that be? could that be? Could that be? The first time I ever wept over the scriptures. I'm still astounded by that. Does that get to you as well? Does that get to you the possibility that the God who hath created all things by the word of his power in loving kindness and infinite mercy chose you before the foundations of the world that you should be holy and without spot before him in love and that should, be, should become part of a, a new family in the earth, the people of God in this place, before the foundations of the world, that you're no accident. Your conversion was not heard in heaven as, oops. No, 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 you were well planned for. Before the foundations of the world. And here you are in this place called Zion where God dwells, where the people celebrate their forgiveness, their inclusion, their intimacy with the Lord, the freshness, the sense of being safe and secure, satisfied. Oh, I love that word there. We shall be satisfied. Yes, of course, they've come home. No more wandering. No more blindness, no more lameness in spirit. They've come home in fullness and wholeness. They have become the people of God, God's kids, and they celebrate by lying, as it were, on his bosom, looking up into his lovely face and calling him Papa. They're home. Lord have mercy. And they pray there. Prayer is offered to you, O God, in Zion, as well as praise. Let me suggest a couple of thoughts before we pray. Prayer and praise belong together. They always have and always will. They do in your life, of course. And the life of the church, of course. When we praise, we pray. When we pray, we praise, in a way. It's almost it's an instinctual sort of thing. 
I've been having fun watching my grandson. I have a little grandson who's seven months old. His mama breastfeeds him. (laughs) He eats like a horse. And he looks like a horse. (laughs) And uh, what what impresses me with that is is the... uh, the demeanor of the youngster, he's, uh, he's, he's at home there at his mother's breast. Uh, there isn't any care at all there. He's being nurtured, cared for, embraced. He feels the warmth of her bosom. She looks into his face and he recognizes her as no other person in all the world. And there he is, in absolute, flat-out joy. Incredible thing. <laughs> my mother used to nurse our kids. My mother uh, was a young woman before she and my stepfather knew what was causing it. There were eight of us. <laughs> and uh, they always bringing some kid home from someplace, and I never knew quite where. Maybe Montgomery Ward or someplace like that. I no idea. And there they were. And she seemed to be happy about that. She'd nurse these kids, and I would stand around and have some fun watching that. And the thing that impressed me and still impresses me as I think back on all of that was how contented my mother was, how contented my brothers and my sisters were, how at rest, how at peace. They were home in my mother's bosom. And God nurtures that idea in this passage of Scripture. God has always been looking for a people whom he could nurture, among whom he could dwell, and through whom. He could nurture and care for a broken world. A place called Zion. A place where people learn intimacy in prayer. You you remember uh, one of our colleagues, Gene Peterson, talks about a conversation he had with a woman who had come to his office. She sat across from his desk and she said, Well, I guess you want to know something about my prayer, uh, my, 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 uh, my sex life, my sex life. Everybody seems to want to talk about that. And he said, if you want to talk about that, I'd be glad to listen. But I really would like to know about your prayer life. And that startled her. And she asked, what's that got to do with anything? He said, because I'd like to know how you handle personal intimacy. From my own experience and listening to others and reading the journals of many others and the great spiritual traditions of the church, one thing emerges. All of the saints have learned how to pray. But in order to pray, they had to learn the secret of intimacy with God, that that was okay, that it was all right in the presence of God. In fact, it was required in the presence of God that all pretense be shoved aside, that all the masks be taken away, that one appear, as it were, before God, naked before the Lord, because God knows us through and through anyhow and accepts us as we are, so let's deal with God in, with integrity. It's there. It's in all of the literature. It's in all of the prayers of the saints. In every discipline, intimacy, the ability to handle it, 
is the key to prayer. And that leads me to this. The God who is host in Zion is holy. And the man says, the, the psalmist says, we are satisfied, those of us who have been chosen and brought near to you, we are satisfied in this place, in this holy place, O oh God. Now all of the communions that name the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, believe in holiness. Some more than others. But in our history, in this country's history, the people who have believed most strongly in holiness are the people who have been in the forefront of every social movement that made a difference in this country. Holiness, sanctification, purity of heart and mind and spirit always translated itself not into a monastic situation, but also, most often, in the streets where people were hurting whether it was anti-slavery or whatever else. Revivalism and social reform, as one of our colleagues had said, go hand in hand. You cannot be right with God and ignore other people. Holiness. Dave Scholler and I are about the same age, sort of, more or less. And so we do tell stories of similar, or Bob Mai, you know that old crowd. And we all spin the same stories in a way. Uh, when I was in Bible school and beyond that, late 40s, early 50s, we went out into the ministry. We went out into a world that was still haunted by our Christian understandings, was still haunted by words that meant something to them. So you could talk about repentance. You could talk about a whole lot of stuff. And, and the society in general could kind of hear what you had to say. They kind of knew where that came from. Because to that generation still, there was still the idea that God was, and that if God was, God was holy, and that uh, he kind of frowned on that kind of behavior. God was holy to most of us in those days. He wasn't very happy, but he was holy. Today, <laughs> today, even among seminary students, God is happy, but he's not very holy. And so, as most pollsters have discovered, there is very little difference in the way Christians behave and non-Christians behave in our society, in spite of all that we believe to the contrary. Let me disabuse you of that notion this morning. There's no way in the world you nor I are going to get along with the God in Zion if we regard iniquity in our hearts. Count on it. God is holy and without spot. And he intends to have a people like that who learn holiness and who practice it as informed by the commandments and the statutes and the word of God. Now, ain't that good news? That the world may know that thou art God. Well, 
when I get this better in mind and I'm practicing it better, I will come and finish this sermon. Let us pray together. Our God, you are with us in this Zion of yours. This place where we gather in your name to praise you and to pray. And in our feeble ways to celebrate that we have been redeemed through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. To celebrate the the idea that you who have created all things have brought us together and keep us together and make us whole. Thank you for, for this place, for us. And we ask that you would bless us and through us make us a blessing that this town may know that you are God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.